Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. People have been making transactions with money for about 5,000 years. Before that, they traded with goods and services. And before that, favors. We are a species highly attuned to swapping, making deals, owing favors, and keeping stock. So it's not surprising that we personify fate. That if one good thing happens to us, we must make a sacrifice later. Sacrifice as a cultural practice has largely disappeared around the world. But has it really gone away? The emotions with Drive, Deal with the Devil stories, are very much alive. Humans have developed various ways of dealing with inequalities. Here's how an anthropologist puts it, in relation to supernatural and Pentecostal beliefs. Witnessing inequalities in attractiveness, wealth, or health provokes feeling of either pity or poverty, depending on perspective. To rectify this imbalance, the morally appropriate response is the exchange of a gift that re-establishes mutual respect and recognition until the feeling of imbalance is counteracted. The perception of imbalance has the potential to assume a negative form, jealousy. That may lead to destructive actions. That was an excerpt from the book Pentecostalism and Witchcraft, Spiritual Warfare in Africa and Malaysia, 
edited by Newt Rio, Michelle McCarthy, and Roy Blaines. A Deal with the Devil, also called a Faustian Bargain, is a cultural motif exemplified by the legend of Faust and the figure of Mephisto, as well as being elemental to many Christian traditions. According to traditional Christian belief about witchcraft, the pact is between a person and the devil, or another demon, trading a soul for diabolical favors, which vary by the tale. They normally include youth, knowledge, wealth, fame, and power. It was also believed that some made this type of pact just as a sign of recognizing the miner as their master, in exchange for nothing. The bargain is a dangerous one, as the price of the fiend's service is the wagerer's soul. The tale may have a moralizing end, with eternal damnation for the foolhardy venture. Conversely, it may have a comic twist, in which the wily peasant outwits the devil, characteristically on a technical point. Who is Faust, you ask? Faust is a scholar who was bored and depressed with his life. After an attempt to take it, he calls the devil for further knowledge and magical powers with which to indulge all the pleasures and knowledge of the world. In response, the devil's representative, Mephisto, appears. He makes a bargain with Faust. Mephistos will serve Faust with magic powers and for a set number of years, but at the end of his term, the devil will claim Faust's soul, and Faust will be eternally enslaved. During the term of the bargain, Faust makes use of Mephistos in various ways. In Giothe's drama, and many subsequent versions of the story, Mephistos helped Faust seduce a beautiful innocent girl, usually named Gretchen, whose life is ultimately destroyed when she gives birth to Faust's bastard son. Realizing this unholy act, she drowns the child and is held for murder. However, Gretchen's innocence saves her in the end, and she enters heaven after execution. In Gauthier's rendition, Faust is saved by God via his constant striving, in combination with Gretchen's pleading with God in the form of the Eternal Feminine. In the early tales, Faust is irrevocably corrupted and believes his sins cannot be forgiven. When the term ends, the devil carries him off to hell. Many stories, Faustian or not, include a stark moral dilemma scene. The Faustian story is one in which the moral dilemma is taken to its extreme, great riches, and the hero's very life. Faustian stories are a thought experiment regarding sacrifice. Everyone has a price. What would be yours? But the story of Dr. Faustus wasn't the only Faustian tale in the first thousand years of Christ. Medieval audiences really liked the tale of a guy who sold his soul to the devil. We also have the similar tale of Theophilus, who started to bitterly regret denouncing Christ and the Virgin in favor of Satan. So he repented. After that, he was known as Theophilus the Pentant. The contract with Satan got burnt up. This was a Faustian tale, but it also a redemption tale. Audiences love those, even today, especially in America. The story of Faustus became the most enduring because it coincided with a time in the medieval era, the 1500s, when certain privileged men were starting to become really schooled up in certain esoteric areas. We take it for granted these days that every professional has their specialty, and no one outside the profession will ever understand what goes into that specialty area. But in medieval times, if you had a specialized job, people thought you were a sorcerer. Ironically, it was in the age of Newton that those ideas were turned in the air. Turns out, we've always been suspicious of science. It was medieval philosophers who argued that revelation was to be found hidden in nature and uncovered by experiment. This was the true scientific revolution. And it was Newton's age that was the great age of superstition. 
It was in the 16th and 17th centuries that people started to believe that human beings could make a pact with the devil and thereby gain supernatural powers. That was taken from Medieval Lives by Terry Jones, a 2004 television documentary series produced for the BBC, written and hosted by comedian and historian Terry Jones. Each half-hour episode examines a particular medieval personality, with the intent of separating myth from reality. A really fun watch. Playwright Christopher Marlowe turned the story into a play, which proved very popular with audiences. Marlowe was born the same year as Shakespeare, to put it into context. Marlowe called the play The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. The story of playwright Christopher Marlowe is as interesting as the story of Dr. Faustus. Marlowe was a gay, blaspheming atheist at the time when all three of those things were not permitted. But he was actually killed in a tavern brawl over the payment of a bill. In any case, we might suspect that Marlowe himself had made a pact with the devil. After an illustrious career as a playwright, he was murdered at the age of 29. We find these Faustian stories terrifying and alluring in equal measure. These stories are designed to help us understand ourselves and our own motivations. But they also help us to solidify our values. One of the most persistent collective wishes is to postpone death. There is always longevity clickbait articles popping up in news feeds nowadays. Folktales describe many such attempts. Characters rarely succeed. Not even in the fantasy world of a fairy tale. Although death can't be cheated long-term, many folktales describe temporary respites. Is it the temporary that we crave? The following is a Swedish version of the tale, Grandfather Death, taken from Stith Thompson's collection, 100 Favorite Folktales, published by Midland Books. A poor man with a large family could find no one to be godfather for his latest son. Finally, death appeared, and the poor man chose him, saying, You make no distinction between high and low. Years later, on the godson's wedding night, Death called him from his bed and took him to a cave where countless candles were burning. Whose light is that? asked the godson, pointing to a candle that was flickering out. Your own, answered his godfather. The godson pleaded with Death to put a new candle in his holder, but the godfather did not answer. The light flickered and went out, and the godson fell down dead. We find from this that you can neither persuade nor cheat Death. The story of the blacksmith who tricked death and in some versions of the devil is one of the most popular folktales in Europe and is truly one of my favorites. The Lord granted a smith three wishes and the latter chose a pear tree that would detain anyone who climbed into it, an easy chair that would hold anyone that sat in it and a bag that would imprison anyone who climbed into it. The devil came to get the smith and the smith invited him to help himself to some fruit from his pear tree. The devil climbed into the tree and was stuck there. The smith would not release him until he promised to give him the smith four more years of life. When the time was up and the devil returned, but he made the mistake of sitting in the smith's magic chair. He had to promise four more years before the smith would release him. On the devil's third visit, the smith tricked him into his bag, and then beat the bag with his hammer until the devil promised to leave him alone. Later, the smith got to thinking that he had perhaps acted unwisely, and he knocked on the gate of hell to make amends. However, the devil would have nothing to do with him, so the smith found his way to heaven. He got there just as St. Peter was letting someone in, and the gate was still ajar. The smith made a rush, and if he didn't get in, then I don't know what became of him. Note how the devil in these tales is not very similar to how we see the devil depicted in stories today. The devil of traditional religion is cunning, sinister, wicked, and almost as omnipotent as God. But in these folktales, he's a fool, 
and he can be outwitted by a clever trickster mortal. This is not an unusual setup in folktales. The idea that we can outsmart evil is reassuring, and I imagine this is why audience enjoyed these folktales so much. Odds are, you spent the majority of your life watching Faustian stories on TV and in the movies, and you haven't even realized it. Movies like The Firm, Silence of the Lambs, Damn Yankees, Rosemary's Baby, and The Devil's Advocate are essentially all the same story. Hell, even The Little Mermaid follows the same plotline. On television, Breaking Bad is a Faustian story. Walter White earns a ridiculous amount of money, but he won't have enough time on Earth to spend it. But in my opinion, the top of the pact in Faustian tales comes from the Harlem, New York-based rapper Immortal Technique in his song, Dance with the Devil. If you've never heard it, I implore you to check it out, and please let me know what you think. The devil grows inside the hearts of the selfish and wicked. White, brown, yellow, black, color is not restricted. You have a self-destructive destiny when you're inflicted. And you'll be one of God's children that fell from the top. There's no diversity because we're burning in the melting pot. So when the devil wants to dance with you, you better say never. Because the dance with the devil might last you forever. Hey folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 1976, Philip Hester was a 23-year-old man with absolutely no future. A high school dropout with a ninth grade education working part-time as a car washer at a Chevy dealership outside of Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Watching people come in and out of the dealership and pulling away in cars the boy could only dream of one day owning was slowly starting to weigh heavy on him. During his normal Wednesday night after work routine of spending his day's pay at the local watering hole, he met someone rather interesting. 
A man dressed in a light gray suit walked into the bar. A sharp-looking businessman passing through town was his guess, as he's never seen him before, and he stuck out like a sore thumb in this mostly blue-collar town. Below his suit jacket was a matching vest, on top of a white shirt and a deep red tie. On top of his head sat a white driver's cap. Quite frankly, it was the whitest anything Phil has ever laid eyes on. He was a slender man with dark features, dark eyes as well as hair. His smile, on the other hand, was dazzling. The huge toothy grin on his face as he walked in before taking the seat two stools down from Philip at the nearly empty bar. What can I get you? The bartender asked the stranger. I'll have a Manhattan, please. Neat. And whatever my young friend is having to my left. He looks like he's having a rough go of it today, the stranger replies. Philip, who isn't really a social butterfly, awkwardly nods in the man's direction as another Schmidt bottle gets slid down in his direction. The bartender places what is probably the worst Manhattan ever served on a bar napkin in front of the stranger. It was the first one ever ordered inside of Roy's pub, and old Roy himself had to break out the bartender's book to see how to even make one. This was a beer and whiskey joint after all. The stranger picks up his drink and slides down next to Phil and offers him a cheers. They clink bottle and glass as the man introduces himself. Richard. Philip just looks at the man confused. Richard Fry. My name, my good boy. Rich to my friends. Oh, Philip responds. I'm Phil. Phil Hester. Good to meet you, Richard. Thanks for the beer. Rich, my boy. I said my friends call me Rich, the man said, followed by that brilliant grin. Now, normally Phil doesn't take kindly to strangers, and he definitely is the one for small talk, but this man was charming. Okay, then. Thank you, Rich. You ain't from around here, are you? I ain't never seen you before. No slipping one past you, is there, Phil? No, you are right. I am not from around here. You could say I'm only just, uh, passing through. Like the traveling carnival. In town for one night only, the man said with a laugh. I just stopped in to decompress a bit before I move on, and I'm glad I did. I wouldn't have made a new friend if I didn't. Well, what's your story, Phil? Tell me about yourself. Bartender, get my friend another Schmidt here, please. Phil's life was sort of a tragic one. Originally from New Hampshire, his father, whom if he was still alive, the people that knew him would say that Phil was following right in his dad's footsteps, was a slacker and alcoholic. And his mom really wasn't much better. Although she did her best to give Phil a good life as a child, and attempted to keep her husband on the straight and narrow, even though she treaded the line herself. She should have listened to her parents, and stayed away from that man, but young love is a dangerous thing. Phil was only eight when they died. In a car wreck in 1965, Dad was drunk behind the wheel and veered off a mountain pass, plunging them to their deaths. Phil's grandparents on his mother's side took him in, and would often share stories about his no-good father. Apparently, his dad had just won New Hampshire State Lottery, that only formed in 1964, and the money would have been life-changing. His parents celebrated a little too hard that night and were never able to cash that ticket. Phil's grandparents didn't know if the story was true or not, or if it was just something else that he told his mother to keep her around. Philip told Richard the story of his parents, how he lived with his grandparents until they died, and how he's been renting a room at the edge of town and working part-time at the Chevy dealer. Richard sat there enthralled with the story. Never has anyone paid such attention to the things that Philip was saying. Phil felt like he was the only person in the room, which was almost true. Aside from the bartender who was cleaning glasses and old Mr. Thompson, who was unconscious and swollen from drink, passed out in a booth in the back of the place, Phil followed up his story with a question of his own. What do you do, Richard? Uh, sorry, Rich. Well, Phil, 
I'm kind of a jack of all trades if I do my say so. I dabble in a little bit of everything. Currently though, I guess you could say I'm in the talent acquisition field. What's that? Phil genuinely asked, intrigued. Well, basically I travel around and find and recruit folk. My boss thinks I have a real eye for talent. He says I have a silver tongue, but he gives me too much credit. It's the people, Phil. The people I find are the ones that are the real stars of the organization. I just merely bring them to the gate. Richard finished with a final swallow of his drink. Phil, look at you. You have me sitting here all night. Look at the time. I must be going. It was a genuine pleasure to meet you, my boy. Perhaps our paths will cross again in the future. Bartender, get my friend here another drink. And another after that. Put it on my tab. I will be settling up now. And just like that, as fast as he came in, he got up and left. Phil was a little confused about the abruptness of the man leaving, but didn't think much after it after the bartender slid his free beer in front of him. And he had another one coming behind that. Jackpot. After another hour or so, Phil made his exit, and feeling pretty damn good. Not only did he have a solid drunk on him right now, but he barely spent any money in doing so. He crossed the road and made his way to his old jalopy that he called a car, parked across the street. It was his grandfather's, and really the only thing of value that he had in his name. Well, technically it was still in his grandfather's name because Phil didn't have the know-how to transfer registrations. And even if he did, he'd be too lazy to do so. As he was fumbling with his keys trying to get them in the door, and dropping them more times than he'd care to admit, he heard a voice behind him. Going somewhere, Mr. Hester? You're not planning on driving that tonight, are you? Because if you are, we're going to have a little talk. It was Officer Frank Petrie an old neighbor of Phil's grandparents. A kid who was only a few years older than Phil himself, and one whom Phil hated. Really, the only reason Phil didn't like the man was because one night when he was a kid, Phil was caught going through their shed, and old man Petrie had Frank beat the ever-living piss out of Phil to teach him a lesson. Oh, hey, Frank, Phil slurred. No, man, I'm not going anywhere. I just... Another voice from behind Frank now. Is it in there, Phil? It was Richard walking up the dark street from behind Officer Frank. My hat, do you see it? I could have sworn I left it in your car. Before Phil could answer, Richard was removing the keys from Phil's hand and opening the door himself. And there it was. That bright white driver's cap, sitting on the front seat. See, I knew it! Turning toward the officer and grabbing his hand to shake it. Thank you so much, officer, for helping my friend to his car. You see, this hat means the world to me. And Phil here thought I may have left it and was checking for me before I walked home. I was in the john, checking to see if maybe I hung it up in there. He wasn't planning on driving this car? Frank asked, disbelieving. Before Phil could open his mouth to argue, Richard answered. Heavens no! Where would you get an idea like that? Honestly. This is all just a misunderstanding. I assure you, officer, I'd let no such thing occur. Frank just nodded at the man, and told him to have a good night, and be careful. Phil didn't know what to say. That could have been a night in the drunk tank. I mean, he's been there before, and Frank just lights up every time he gets to put Phil in there. Thank you, Richard. Rich, my boy. Call me Rich. Okay, Rich. <laughs> I owe you a little bit, but I'm a little confused. How, how'd your hat get in my car? The doors were locked. Well, Phil, there's a lot of things I can do. Walk with me. The two men started slowly strolling down the middle of the empty, moon-drenched road. Are you happy, Phil? Sure. Don't lie to me, Richard said. I can see right through you, and I know you're not. You have a want in your heart. A want to be looked upon with great respect. 
a need to be the man that you feel you're destined to be. I can help you accomplish that. Well, I really want a new car, Phil said between hiccups. And a house for my own. I guess I just want what most people want, huh? Of course you do. And I can help you get it. The American dream is right at your fingertips. And it'll only cost you your soul. Phil stopped walking, immediately sobering up. Wait. Did you say my soul? Phil's mood quickly going from happy drunk to anger, as feeling as though this stranger was making fun of him. I sure did. I get it, Phil replied sourly. City guy passing through a small town and wants to have a few laughs making fun of a local. Well, you got the wrong guy, mister. I assure you, Phil, I am not making fun. If you think I'm lying, what do you have to lose? You see, my boss says I'm very good at what I do, and I'm allowed all kinds of liberties to make any kind of deal I want. What do you say? How about it? Sure, Rich. Whatever you say. My soul, you got it. In exchange for... Richard replied with a growing grin. What are the terms? What do you want, my boy? Philip now just playing along. Well, I want to be rich. No, not just rich. I want to be wealthy. That me and none of mine will ever have to worry about money again. And I want to be successful. I want the name of Hester not to be something that people around here laugh at, but something that people admire. Good show, my friend. But I'm afraid for all that, I'm going to need a little bit more than your soul. Well, what else do you want? Perhaps the soul of your firstborn as well? Yes. Promise me the soul of your firstborn, and all what you want and more will be within your grasp. Philip, thinking that he isn't even talking to a woman, never mind having a girlfriend to even have a child with. The last girl he was romantically involved in was during summer camp his grandparents sent him to in the seventh grade, and he got sent home early that summer for burning down the boat launch. He agrees to these terms. Top man, Richard exclaims and pats Phil hard on the back. You're hardly going to regret this. He grabs Philip's hand and gives him a sturdy shake and looks him deep into the man's eyes. That's it. The deal is done. We don't fool around here with a contract. A handshake will do. Speak of this with no one. And with that, I wish you a good evening. Our business here is concluded. Richard makes an about face and starts making his way down the street the way they came. Phil turns to him and says, Okay, pal. Yeah, it was real nice meeting you. He says with an eye roll. Thanks for the beers. Richard turns to Philip, and that's when Phil noticed his eyes were a different color. Well, a different color is wrong. They were still dark. But the whites. The whites of his eyes were now equally as dark. Grinning at Phil, he lifts his stark white cap and places it on his head and says to him, Philip, it was an absolute pleasure. I'll be seeing you soon. And with that, he turned and walked out of Phil's life. The next morning for Philip started like most mornings, with a god-awful hangover and a little hair of the dog. But that day was different. When he made his way downstairs from the room he rents, he had mail sitting on the table by the front door. He almost walked right past it because he never gets mail. He has no one in his life to send him any. It had postage on it from New Hampshire, a place he hasn't been back to since he was a kid. It also required a signature upon delivery, to which the nice old lady who rented him the room had signed. Opening the envelope and pulling out the letter, it read, Dear Mr. Hester, I hope this letter finds you well. You are a hard man to track down. I will keep this short and sweet. In 1965, your father, a Philip Hester Sr., was the winner of the New Hampshire State Lottery, totaling $98,000. 
then known as the New Hampshire Sweepstakes. He began the process of cashing out his winnings before his untimely death. The money was kept in an account while his next of kin was located. Being that it was your mother, Ellen, and she also perished in the same accident, the money was bounced around to different state agencies while you were located. Long story short, bureaucracy got in the way and the money was forgotten about until I took over the agency. Your winnings have been kept in an escrow account until the proper person, which is you, could be found. With interest, your pot has grown to $142,000. Congratulations, Philip, and I'm sorry for your loss. Signed, Martin Scroll, New Hampshire State Treasurer. Dictated but not read. Behind the letter was a certified bank check made out to Philip in the amount of $142,000. Philip almost fainted. And just like that, he'd forgotten all about the handshake. And it turns out Phil wasn't as dumb as we all thought. Working at the car dealership, washing cars, and spending time with the salesman, he picked up some things through osmosis. And when he heard that the dealership he worked for was going up for sale in a few days, for a mere $99,000, Philip made the purchase. The owner didn't believe it at first, but once the check cleared and the lawyers confirmed that the assets were legit, the deal was made. It was a whirlwind of a time for Phil. And would you know it, he turned that dying Chevy dealership around. It became the number one selling car dealership in the state. Well, by then, he had enough capital to buy another. Then another. And another. By 1983, he was the owner of the Hester Auto Group, the largest car dealership chain in the country. That was also the same year his wife, Sally, who was the receptionist at the dealership when he washed cars there, gave birth to their first child, a son, which they named Philip III. Life was good. Life was really, really good. In the time since receiving the winnings from his parents' lotto, Philip went from zero to hero, basically. He purchased his grandparents' old home, essentially just to keep it in their memory, and had beautiful, intricate headstones replace the generic ones the cemetery provided to the people who couldn't afford anything else for his parents. On the day his son was born, he was flooded with phone calls and congratulation gifts from all his friends and colleagues. It was when he opened the card in the black envelope that made his blood run cold. It was a generic card with a blue flower on the front. When he unfolded it, the message simply read, Told you so. Can't wait to meet the little fella. See you soon. Rich. The memories of that night came flooding back. He made his way to his bar and tore open a bottle of whiskey and took a big swig. Now that he thinks of it, this was his first drink since that night. I wish I could say it was his last. In the years that followed, Philip retreated from family and friends the night his son was born. Remembering what had happened that night in front of Roy's pub shook him to his core. He refused to believe that this was a coincidence. He fell back into a bottle and never found his way back out. The day of his son's 18th birthday, Philip found himself on his deathbed, suffering from cirrhosis of the liver. With his son at his side, he explained what happened to him that day in 1976 and warned him to watch out for the sharp-dressed man in the white hat. Young Philip chalked this up to the amount of medication his father was on. Philip III had to take up a lot of responsibility once his father had passed away. His mother, unable to cope with the alcohol abuse, decided if you can't beat them, join them, and had her demons in the bottle as well. She hardly got out of bed anymore, and when she did, the young man had to carry her back to bed, or to the bathroom to clean the vomit off herself that she made. One summer afternoon, there was a knock at the front door. Sally was sleeping, as usual, and Phil had just gotten home from visiting his girlfriend. Upon opening the door, he was greeted with a dazzling smile. A very well-dressed, handsome man wearing a white driver's cap. Kids nowadays call them Kangol hats. Good afternoon, Phil. 
The name is Richard, Richard Fry, but my friends call me Rich. That's what your dad called me. Me and him go way back. The man in the white hat? This can't be the same man that my dad was talking about. Those were the incoherent ramblings of a drugged-up dying man. But here he was, standing at his threshold. May I come in, my boy, or are you just going to leave me standing in the doorway looking at me like that? Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Please, come in. You said you were a friend of my dad's? Yes, you could put it that way. I believe he told you about me. How did this man know what my dad told me? He told me those things hours before he died. And as if Richard was reading the boy's mind, he answered the question. That's the reason I'm here to see you. Now, while there was nothing in writing, that is essentially against the rules. A breach of contract. Our agreement must not be spoken about. It would have slipped right by me. I normally don't look in much on people on their deathbeds. A bit of a respect thing, you know. But you see, I saw your father this morning. What? Philip interrupted. You, you saw my dad? Richard, looking at Philip, quite annoyed after being cut off. Like I said, I saw your father this morning, and he told me of your conversation, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to collect on mine and his agreement early. I hope you understand. He didn't seem too keen on the idea of me coming to collect you, but there really wasn't much he could do about it. He had a two o'clock flaying today with Azroth, and boy, that boy sure does enjoy his work. He would be tied up for days. Phil took a few steps back, really confused. Wait, my life? That story was true? No, it can't be. Wait, there has to be something, some way we can resolve this. Hmm. Perhaps a new deal can be arranged. I'm listening, Richard responded, intrigued at the possibility. Well, what was my dad's agreement with you? Your dad gave up his soul, as well as yours, a quite cowardly thing if you ask me, in exchange for every luxury you indulge in today. You had a great run, much better off than your father was at your age. You've never wanted for anything. But there was something that Phil wanted. He wanted his mother back. I'll make a deal. In exchange for my soul, I want you to fix my mother. Make her better. Help her, please. Richard looked taken aback. You know, in all the years I've been doing this, hardly anyone ever asked for something that doesn't greatly benefit themselves. That is very selfless of you, my boy, but unfortunately, I already own your soul, so hop to it. With that, an enormous dagger dripping with gore appeared in Richard's hand as he stepped aggressively towards Philip. Wait, 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 Phil said with his hands out. I'll make the same deal as my dad then, my unborn child. In exchange for your mother's well-being? Yeah, that's it. Just make my mom normal again. And no matter what happens, she stays that way. Done. The dagger vanishes and Richard turns around and out the front door. At that moment, a call came from upstairs. Phil? Philly? Are you home, hon? I was going to order some lunch. Are you interested? Or would you like to maybe go somewhere? You're not too old to be seen out with your mother, are you? Phil turned back and looked outside, but Richard was gone. Phil and his mom went out and had a wonderful afternoon together. They had a great lunch and stopped by one of the dealerships because, as mom put it, we got to show face around here and get everyone comfortable seeing you, Phil. This is going to be all yours one day. Phil just smiled, but he knew it wouldn't. He made this deal knowing full well what he was going to do. He wasn't going to risk subjecting more people to this, more of his loved ones, current or future, going down this path, damning his bloodline to being essentially in hock to the devil or whatever he was. At 10 p.m. that night, Philip kissed his mother on her cheek while she watched a T-Vote episode of Gilmore Girls sitting on the couch and made his way out back to the pool house and took his own life with his dad's revolver.
The funeral was beautiful. Friends, family, and employees and colleagues filled the church. A very handsome man, his mom noticed, in a white hat stood at the church steps and watched the service through the open doors. Many tears were shed that day. Sally sat up front next to Rebecca, who was Phil's girlfriend. She was devastated. She was with him the entire morning the day he committed suicide and said nothing about him seemed off that day. He was his normal loving self. She missed him so much already and knew her life was not going to be the same. She was full of regrets. Regret she didn't get to kiss him one more time. Regret she didn't end their last call with I love you. Regret she never got the chance to tell him that he was going to be a dad. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.